0: One for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, but they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. The word of God for the world. As we've already noted this morning, this is Transfiguration Sunday, the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. Transfiguration Sunday serves as a hinge or a door of sorts, connecting the end of Epiphany and the beginning of Lent. The word Epiphany actually means to show forth, to appear, or to reveal. Epiphany reminds us that God reveals God's self to us in human form, and that despair and darkness are not the final word on anything. Epiphany reminds us that our life and our hope are to be lived in response to and relationship with the beloved one sent by God. Epiphany ends with this strange story of Jesus' transfiguration, a story about what really matters to God. In addition to our focus on Mark's gospel account of this mountaintop experience of three disciples and three prophets complete with a voice of God accompanied by clouds, mystery, shock, and awe, we are also focusing on the providence value of simplicity. Now wrap your mind around that task. Preaching on transfiguration is and simplicity. As we gathered around the table at Free For All this week, with one of the most opaque and complex narratives in all of Scripture to consider, I asked the folks to look at it, both from what the passage meant to them and from what it had to do with simplicity. I told them, I begged them, really, that I needed their help with my sermon. Their response? Dead silence. <laughs> in the face of holy mystery and a call for simplicity silence was an appropriate response in fact silence is exactly the place to start if we are to really listen for the still small voice of God in the midst of our cluttered and fragmented lives into the silence at free for all Brian offered this quote by celebrated architect, Frank Lloyd Wright. Turns out he's also a theologian. I think it describes our 21st century cultural relationship to simplicity. Simplicity is difficult to comprehend nowadays. Life is a more complex struggle now. We are no longer truly simple. We no longer live in simple terms or places. It is now valiant to be simple, a courageous thing to even want to be simple. It is a spiritual thing to comprehend what simplicity means. We have so many options and choices at our disposal. Just a simple trip down a grocery store cereal aisle, trying to choose a cereal can be overwhelming. (laughs) Have you ever left a restaurant with a headache from the decibel level you encountered while eating the meal? Or hoarse from trying to talk over the dens? Wright's description is accurate. In our noisy, complex, anxiety-producing, competitive, frenetic world, simplicity is hard to come by. Wright's call to connect simplicity with spirituality is spot on. Courageously choosing to value and practice simplicity and the attendant silence to which simplicity beckons us may be a way toward wholeness in the midst of our complex lives. We describe our providence value of simplicity this way we have adopted the phrase sacred and simple, aiming to be a place of healing and renewal. As we consider the gospel account of this sacred mountaintop experience, is there a simple nugget of truth it contains? A truth that can shed light on the simplicity that heals and renews in the midst of our rollercoaster world? First of all, we have to acknowledge the miraculous nature of this story. Let me just say that I weary of our modern day need to equate truth with only that which we can prove factually. Truth includes fact, but truth can also transcend fact in the forms of story and metaphor, memory and intuition. Marcus Borg was often quoted as saying, I don't know if this story actually happened this way or not, but I do know that it is true. The transfiguration account is truth shrouded in mystery, requiring us to feel more than to understand with our cognitive minds. However, too many times we get so caught up trying to explain it or fussing among ourselves about whether the miracle is literally true, that we miss the point entirely. This morning, I want us to hold this story lovingly and excavate some of the simple truths that lie within this miraculous and inexplicable event. The context of the story in Mark's gospel is this. Jesus has just finished talking with his disciples, telling them about his impending death and warning them that following him is no easy journey. After this, maybe just to make sure they get his point, he takes three of his most trusted disciples on a real road trip up a high mountain. Much of the descriptive language in the early verses of Mark 9 is reminiscent of Deuteronomy 18, because Mark wants his hearers to connect Jesus with two venerated Hebrew heroes of faith, the liberator Moses and the prophet Elijah. The inclusion of Moses and Elijah drives home Mark's point. Jesus is one of them. He's in their league with the same kind of credibility and authority they have. He is both liberator and prophet his word and his leadership are to be trusted at this point and to their credit the disciples recognize that something holy and sacred is taking place they get that this mountaintop that this is a mountaintop experience of the highest order and they are awestruck and terrified peter the text says did not know what to say so what does he do? He talks. Nervous chatter. We have to commemorate this amazing holy moment somehow. I don't know, let's build a building, put up a plaque, and celebrate with a covered dish lunch in the new facility. <laughs> it's a very human reaction. We tend to commemorate meaningful events and concretize awesome moments. Because even though we may not know what to make of them, we don't want them to end. Jesus has just told the disciples he was going to die. Holding him on that mountain protects him and preserves their way of life with him. New experiences terrify us too, because mountaintop experiences are potentially life changing and we are fearful in the face of what the event might call us to let go of or do differently. We don't welcome change. We prefer our comfort zones where everything is known, controllable, and manageable. Philip reminded us at Free For All that theologian Frank Stagg used to say, we'd rather put God in stained glass where we can contain him than to let him walk freely down our aisles where we can't. the disciples on that mountain were in this terrifying, mystifying experience that could not wrap their minds around. Philip observed they did what they had always done in their Jewish tradition, build a building. It's true. Their history told them that God lived in a building, in the temple. Peter was reacting out of his comfort zone with what he knew create a structure, build an altar, erect a shrine, give God a container to stay. There's nothing wrong with that. And it's very helpful to do just that at times because memory sometimes requires prompting. Buildings, statues, and rituals help us remember important things. But there is a danger with this. Humans can become distracted by and fall in love with our statues and rituals. So we don't have to move outside our comfort zones where God's spirit blows where it wills. We can become so consumed with preserving the glory of the moment that we risk missing what God's spirit is calling us to see and do next. In our story, God is not having any of that. As Peter is busy organizing the building committee, God interrupts the proceedings. God speaks. The startling thing God says at that moment is a significant indicator of the will of God for followers then and followers now. The statement from God is startlingly simple. Just nine words in English. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. At Free For All, Linda said, all they're being asked to do is listen. We're usually tempted to cut out silence first. And Herb said, it's much more comfortable to be busy than to be quiet and listen. Silence can be threatening for us. When all grows quiet, we begin to hear the cacophony that resides inside ourselves, those voices that shame us, remind us of our brokenness, of our fear, or the confusion that nags at us and keeps us awake at night, the so-called monkey mind. Crowded, busy lives help us keep those inner voices at bay. Noisy, distracted busyness around us is preferable to the din that arises within us when we get quiet and still. We have to persevere in and practice silence, to choose to keep quiet and listen, in order to hear the still, small voice that beckons us toward peace and wholeness. Listening is one of God's core values. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes expressed his understanding of the value of listening this way. It is the province of knowledge to speak, and it is the privilege of wisdom to listen. Wise people listen. They pay attention. The Greek word for listen used in verse 7 implies a command that English translation cannot convey adequately. Not only does it mean to comprehend what someone says, but also to obey. When the teacher says, Listen, I am only going to give these instructions one time, that means pay attention so that you know what to do to pass this test. When God says, Listen, there is an implied command. It's simple. Just listen to Jesus so that you will know how to face the tests that life will bring. Obey him and you will live the full lives you were created to live. Lives that please me like his does. And you will know what to do when he is no longer with you. Shirley and her husband Edgar are dear friends of mine. About 10 years ago, Shirley was diagnosed with cancer that they knew would eventually take her life. They asked me to accompany them as they walked this painful and holy road toward her death. The day before she died, I visited Shirley. We all knew the end was drawing near. She was not eating much and speaking very little. When I arrived, I found her agitated, restless, and in pain. Nothing we could say or do seemed to ease her pain or settle her spirit. We scurried busily around, offering pain meds, fluffing pillows, bringing soothing tea, rubbing feet. Nothing soothed. We knew she had something urgent she needed or wanted, but we were not getting it. Finally, in desperation, I just lay down on her bed beside her and said, "'Shirley, do you want me to pray?' Vehemently, she shook her head and said, No! <laughs> I said, Then I will just be here with you in silence and listen. God is in the silence listening too. She sighed, settled, and tears began to roll down her face. We lay there in silence for a long time. Suddenly, her eyes flew open. She turned and grabbed me with both arms and put her face right next to mine. Take care of Edgar, she said. Promise that you'll take care of Edgar. I promised her I would. And two more times, she said this, still holding on to me with both hands, shaking me and looking me urgently in the face. The last time, I just nodded my head in solemn promise and hugged her. She lay back, finally peaceful, and went to sleep. The next morning, Shirley made her journey on into God. When I stopped my busyness, got quiet, and really listened, Shirley told me what she needed. Noted theologian Paul Tillich said, the first duty of love is to listen. When Jesus says, back up, this story gets me. Paul Tillich said, the first duty of love is to listen. And Shirley reminded me of that that day. This passage reminds us all of it when God says this is my beloved son listen to him God is saying the first duty of love is to listen when Jesus says if you love me you will keep my commandments and make your home in my love he is saying the first duty of love is to listen it's just that simple If one of our core values is simplicity, resisting the urge to build build bigger buildings or make worship into performance, honoring the silence and making space for the still, small voice to be heard, honoring community life over institutional protection, creating sacred space for healing and renewal to be realized, then we must realize that simplicity rises out of God's core values. Listen to my son. Do what he says. Listening is an intentional act of love requiring that we hear more than the words that are spoken. We pay attention to behavior, to body language, to the more complete details of someone's life. This way of paying attention is how love listens. That's how we must listen to Jesus. We must listen to his life and his words. Then and only then can we know how to follow him more fully. Then and only then can we know how to listen to our own lives. Listen to your life, says Frederick Neal. See it for the fathomless mystery that it is. In the boredom and pain of it, no less than in the excitement of gratitude. Touch, taste, and smell your way to the holy and hidden heart of it. Because in the last analysis, all moments are key moments. And life itself is great. (coughs) We must listen to our lives in light of Jesus. Listen to his words. My peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled. If you want to be my followers, deny yourselves, take up your crosses and follow. Whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. The one without sin may cast the first stone. Greater love has no one than this, than when lay down one's life for one's friends. Father, forgive feed my sheep, abide in my love, do not be afraid. Listen to his actions. Talking with a despised Samaritan woman. Touching and healing unclean lepers. Challenging legalistic religious leaders and rituals. Spending time alone with God kneeling to draw in the dirt, weeping at the grave of a friend, taking towel and washing feet, carrying his own cross. When we listen to Jesus, really listen to his words in his life, we come to see that his life was ultimately about simplicity, consistency, and congruence. Jesus lived authentically from the inside out. His life was integrated and whole. The world around him noticed and ultimately conferred on him the title of Christ. This is the life to which we are called. We show up, laws, imperfections, questions and all, and we listen to our own lives in light of what we discern in Jesus' Christ. We pay attention. We try to get our words and actions to match. We ask the main questions. How can we live out our faith in the world every single day? How do we reach for the same wholeness we see in Jesus' name? And we call our church to help us learn to be the persons of faith, not just people who have faith, as if it were one of our possessions to put in our pocket. God knows this yearning and speaks. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to his words. Listen to his life. And you will know more how to listen and to live your own. Listening can be uncomfortable, as Glenda pointed out at Free For All. If I get silent, I'm more apt to be aware of the clouds in my head and my heart. We have to be willing to face that clouded monkey mind. And we have to practice listening. It does not just happen. But, Herb reminded us, where there is silence, there is creativity. When we face the cloud, silence our chatter, and listen to our lives in light of Jesus' life then we can let our past clouds and present realities inform our future. The creative winds of spirit are free to blow among and within us. We can see our individual and communal lives as the fathomless mysteries that they are, celebrate the ways in which we have followed faithfully, and look honestly at the places where we miss the road listening carefully and faithfully to Jesus, frees us to live lives that are more about compassion than hatred and exclusion, more about forgiveness than judgment, more about walking and living in tents in the valley than building structures on the mountain. Living the simple life in God's kingdom begins with which. People.